good morning, but I already said that. So it's me again. Uh, normally we have a beautiful uh, bumper here to transition into this, uh, this time as we study God's word. Uh, but you don't get that this morning. So good morning again. Uh, I will have you know that even though the screen is out in the back, Kevin has given me this lovely clock to make sure that I stay on time, which I think I did reasonably well in the first service, uh, I was going to just wait until, you know, people start to get up to leave uh, and to figure out when we're done, but uh, in that, it, since it's the second service, we'd be wrapping up about 11.45 when some of y'all get up to go. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, y'all hang in there, because this is actually, this is a great, great uh, message that we have this morning. And by great, I mean, I'm probably all throughout it going to step on your toes, and that's, that's kind of, uh, that's what makes it good. Uh, we need that sometimes. We need our spiritual toes stepped on. You know, last week as we left off in chapter 17, I just want to remind you that we looked at the providence and the protection and the provision of God. We saw how God divinely appointed Hushai to, ve- to defeat the council of Ahithophel, how God protected the spies, how he protected the messengers, and how he ultimately protected his king, and how God provided a resolution to the problem that was facing David in the death of of Ahithophel, and he ultimately provided the rest and nourishment for his weary people, both of which happened in in unexpected ways that could only be attributed to the movement of God. And at the end of chapter 17, we saw that Absalom had indeed taken the counsel of Hushai, and he had amassed an army, and he had led that army out after David crossing the Jordan and was camped out with his army. And meanwhile, David and company was secured in the city of Mahanaim and where they had been blessed with an abundance of provisions from the Gentile men who who cared for David and for his people. You know, the last two weeks have really been the height of the trials that God had promised to David. And as we move into chapter 18, we're going to see this conflict with Absalom come to a close. So I, w- I want you to turn with me, 2 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to try to break this up into, uh, into some portions because it's quite a long chapter, but let's, let's start by taking a look at verses 1 through 8. So 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1, And then David mustered the men who were with him, and he set them uh, over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David set out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the commander of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the commander, command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth ten thousand of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. And the king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. And so the king stood at the side of the gate with all the army, marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. And so the army went out into the field against Israel. And the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day. Twenty thousand men. And the battle spread over the face of all the country. And the forest devoured more people that day 
than the sword. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, God, for these things that you have divinely inspired to be written down, Lord, and has preserved through the centuries and through the millennia, Lord, this morning so that we might read your word, that we might glean from it. Lord, we know every word that is there is by your providence. And so speak to us now through your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Open our hearts to the message that you have for us this morning. And Lord, help it to bring you every bit of the glory and honor and praise that you deserve. In the name of King Jesus, we pray. Amen. So as the Bible sets the stage for this battle that is soon to take place, I don't want us to overlook, first and foremost, that this is a terrible situation to be in. You know, you know, I think we could, over the last couple of chapters, maybe get the misunderstanding that this was somehow a small conflict that was going on between David and Absalom and between maybe a few hundred people. But uh, the wonderful part about this text is that it clearly lays out for us that that is not the case. Even though it only takes up a couple of chapters we see that this was no small skirmish. We see right in verse 1 that it was necessary for David to appoint commanders over every hundred and every thousand soldiers. And not only that, but even over those thousands, he, he appoints three leaders. And so the, the, there are at least leaders of thousands, multiples of them, reporting to each of these three men. And so there, there are literally thousands of people probably tens of thousands of people going into battle over this conflict with Absalom. And then in the names of the men, we see and we're reminded what's really terrible about this battle. Not only is it among God's people, but it's among family. It tells us that two of the commanders of, of the thousands are Joab and his brother Abishai. And if you remember from last week, I told you that in the lineage that we saw for Amasa, this was the person that Absalom had, put, had appointed as a commander over his army. We saw that this was Joab's second cousin. So in three of the four people that we have named responsible for leading thousands and thousands and thousands of people into battle against each other, they are blood relatives. This is truly a dark day for the people of Israel. And there's likely not a family that is not impacted by what we are about to see here. But even in these first few verses, we see what makes David different than Absalom and what will ultimately give him victory. And it starts with knowing the value of good counsel. That's our, that's our first point this morning, the value of good counsel. You see, David starts in, that, in the beginning of that section in verse 2 by trying to do what he sees as the right thing to go out with his army. This is the opposite of what he did that set all of these events into motion. If you remember from back in 2 Samuel chapter 11, when David saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof, it was because he had stayed home. In fact, we're specifically told in the text that it was spring when all of the kings went out to, with their armies to do battle, and yet David was not with his army. He sent them out to fight uh, alone, and he stayed home, which ultimately led to his affair, to the murder of Uriah, and to the many other things that he has done that have led to this point in time. And so, of course, 
Of course his response is, no, I'm going to go out with you to battle. He can see clearly how staying home was not the right choice, and yet there are those that are around him that are wise enough to say that it's foolish for David to go out into battle with them in this case. They tell him that he's worth 10,000 men. This doesn't mean that David's life is literally worth the lives of 10,000 people. But what it does mean is if he dies or if he's captured, the battle's lost. The impact would be the same as if their entire army had been decimated. And so he receives this good counsel from his people that he should stay behind and send them help from the city. And just as another gentle reminder, this is the exact opposite of the counsel that Absalom received from Hushai and that he's ultimately following right now as he, in in a prideful way, leads out this army into battle against his father. See, that's what Hushai told him to do. He said, you should amass a giant army and you yourself should lead them out into battle. And that's what Absalom does. We saw that back in chapter 17. And so, in the contrast of the counsel that we get to receive, we see the value, and we're going to see how it plays out in this chapter, ultimately of good counsel, but also of the wisdom of, uh, of being able to listen to it. You know, it's one thing to receive good counsel. It's another to have the wisdom to listen to that good counsel. Proverbs 19.20 says, Listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. And Proverbs 9, 8, and 9 says, Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. But listen to this. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. And that's what we see from David. He not only has people around him to give him good counsel, but he has the wisdom to listen to them. He says in response to what they say, whatever seems best, that's, that's what I'll do. I'll stay right here and I will send you help from this city. Who do you have in your life that's willing to speak into it? Are you willing to listen to them? To accept their counsel? God has given us brothers and sisters to help us grow in wisdom and in godliness through their good counsel. Not to make us bristle at their guidance. According to Proverbs that we just read, that's what fools do, is bristle at the guidance of good counsel, but to help us walk in wisdom and righteousness. So who do you have that's giving you that good counsel, and are you willing to listen to him? And maybe you need to be that wise counselor to someone else. Maybe there's someone you need to remind that they shouldn't be neglecting the fellowship of the church and worship with the body. Maybe there's somebody that you need to tell that their kids need them to be a godly leader in their home or that their life is, amounts to more than their job or their kids' sports or their hobbies. Maybe there's somebody on your, on your heart that you need to tell that God wants to accomplish something in their lives if they would just get out of the way and let go of their anxiety or their bitterness or their fear or their mistrust, and they would let him take the lead. Thank God that David had people around him that were willing to give him good counsel and also that he had the wisdom to heed their words because we're told right here in the chapter that 20,000 men died that day. 
or in this battle. And even though the men of David prevailed, it was a devastating loss. Men devoured by both the sword and by the, by the forest. And so we've seen here the value of good counsel. Let's look at our second point, and it's down in the next section, and we're going to see the value of integrity. You know, we just saw that on the way out to battle, David gave very clear instructions for no one to harm Absalom. And even that all the people heard it when he gave the instruction to the commander. So everybody knows that David's desire is that they deal gently with Absalom. And let's, let's take a look at what happens next. So we're going to look down and let's, let's look at 9 through 15 here. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. And Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it, and he told Joab, And behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver... I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand, and he thrust them in the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And the ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. So in much the same way as we saw last chapter happen to Ahithophel, we see Absalom divinely undone by his pride. We already know that it was his pride that led him out into the wilderness with this massive army against a man that everyone knew was a wise and valiant warrior. But I also want to remind you what we're told about Absalom back in chapter 14 in verses 25 and 26. It says this of Absalom, Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him. And then look at this. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head and 200 shekels by the king's weight. Just so we're on the same page, 200 shekels is like five pounds. Five pounds of hair when he would cut his hair. And there's nothing wrong with growing long hair, but most of the time when in the Old Testament when we peop see people grow their hair out, it's because they're under a vow. Absalom's not under a vow. He just grows his hair because he likes it to be long, and he likes to weigh it when he cuts it and be proud of himself. I mean, look at that. It's one thing to grow your hair long and to like it long and to cut it, but then he takes the effort to weigh it just to, just to see how proud he can be of how much hair he has. And so you ask, why are we talking about this? So it's with this that we see 
through this lens, when we look at this picture of him riding under a tree and his mule continuing on, that we have to believe that he was caught by the hair in these limbs, by this pride, prideful hair that's got him. He's grown it out long and it's been stuck in the tree and, and now is entangled in these branches. And so when his mule keeps going, he remains stuck. And then we're told that there was a certain man. We don't learn his identity, but this man sees him stuck in the tree. And he goes and he tells Joab. Now, I want us to remember something that's important about Joab. Joab was the one that, after Absalom murdered Amnon, Joab was the one that saw how tormented David was about his son being away in Gesher. He never, we're never told that he said it, but he could see how heavy it weighed on him. And so Joab cooks up this plan. If you guys remember, this is just a few chapters ago. He gets this woman to go before the king and to tell the king a story. And she goes before the king and she tells him, look, my one son uh, was accidentally killed by my other son. And now everybody wants to put my, my son who's still alive to death. And behold, there's going to be no heir. There's going to be nobody to take care of me. And David says, no, we're not going to let that happen. Uh, and then through this conversation with this woman, he ultimately sees through that this is a story that Joab has cooked up. But he still, because of this, because of this effort, he still is moved and invites Absalom uh, to come back, only to not come into his sight. And so Absalom returns to Jerusalem because of the work of Joab. And then after a couple of years, we're told that Absalom, he grows discontent with not being able to come into the king's presence. And so again, it's Joab that Absalom reaches out to, and he says, he sends him a message, and he wants him to come to him. And Absalom, I'm sorry, and Joab neglects, neglects this message. He doesn't come to Absalom. And he sends for him again, and he doesn't come to him. And so Absalom has this idea. Well, I'm going to get Joab's attention. And so he instructs his servants to go and set Joab's fields on fire because they're right next to his fields. And so Joab does come, and he says, Why have you set my fields on fire? And Absalom says, It's because I want you to take a message to the king. And to say that I want to be allowed to come back into his presence. And so this is Joab that's, that's had these interactions, both, uh, both to try to heal this relationship between David and Absalom, and also as a victim of Absalom as he, uh, as he burned down his field. And then ultimately Joab, as the leader and commander of part of David's army, sees what Absalom has done in overtaking Jerusalem and driving David out and now in pursuing them. And so this is Joab that then approaches this and tries, to, and tries to understand what should happen here. And so, while this certain man was not willing to strike, Joab, or strike Absalom down, we can't help but see that Joab, he's been embittered against Absalom. We don't know exactly which one of the things that we just talked about has caused this change in perspective, but he's gone from somebody who wanted to build a bridge between David and Absalom to help David heal this wound between him and his son to somebody who wants to see Absalom dead. And so when he questions the man about why he didn't just put Absalom to death when he found them there in the forest, that man responds, and again, this is why I want us to see the value of integrity. He responds by saying, no, this is, this is not right. You heard you heard the king say that no harm should come to him. And even you being willing to pay me for putting him to death is not enough. In fact, he says, 
even if you put 10 times that amount in my hand, not just told me you would do it, but you put it physically in my hand and I felt a thousand shekels, I wouldn't raise my hand against the king's son. He wouldn't harm him because the king's wish was that nobody would harm him. And it was said publicly in front of everybody. And we start to see this wonderful picture of integrity. Doing what's right in the sight of man is integrity, but righteousness is doing what's right in the sight of God. And there would be no justifiable reason to put Absalom to death while he was hanging helpless from a tree. It would be a different thing if they were all doing battle in the field and it was part of battle that, that he, he came to die. But this man is defenseless, stuck in a tree, and they've been commanded by the king that no harm should come to him. And yet, Joab's anger has him so blinded, both to the word of the king as well as to the word of God. Integrity is, is one of the truest measures of righteousness. I want you to see that because integrity and righteousness go hand in hand because it recognizes an authority above oneself. It yields to the fact that we live in a world that has laws and government and order and that the leaders in this world have been put there by God. And so, as believers, both God's commands and their commands supersede any of our feelings or preferences you know, it's been said that integrity is doing what's right when no one's watching. But I think we see an even better picture of integrity here because this man does what's right when everybody's watching. When everybody's wishing that he would do something different. Not because they want to see him fail, but because they believe it's the right thing to do to put Absalom to death. And yet this man, in the face of all of that, in, fa in the face even of his commander, is saying, no, I, I wouldn't do that. We've been told not to. I wouldn't raise my hand against the king's son. He knew what was right, and in the face of everybody, he stuck to what was right. And so it gives us an opportunity for reflection. What are the areas in our lives where we are constantly challenged to do what is right? Just because everybody around you is doing something doesn't mean it fits into God's commands. Where are our integrity and our righteousness challenged the most? Is it in our responsibility and our attitude with which we treat our taxes? Often a way that people think nobody will, nobody's looking and nobody will notice. Is it in our attitudes towards alcohol or tobacco or drugs or sex? Is it in our willingness to share and defend our faith even when it's unpopular? Is it in the way we treat our spouses, in our faithfulness to our promises or even just in our attitudes towards other believers. Our integrity and our righteousness matter. Not only for the lives that we live now, but for the legacy that we leave behind. In fact, that's the next thing that I want us to see. I want us to take a look at the value of a legacy. Because right here at the end of the section that we just read, we see Joab and his ten men, contrary to the king's instruction, they thrust javelins into Absalom and they strike him until he's dead. But I want you guys to see what happens next. Let's look down in verse 16. It says, Then Joab, he blew the trumpet 
And the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and they threw him into a great pit in the forest and they raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. And now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and he had set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. You see, we're told here that, that Absalom had set up a monument for himself, but he's not going to get to use it. And in a moment, just like that, this battle was over. We see that Joab sounds the trumpet, and the men pull back, and Absalom's men flee. I want you to know when it says the men of Israel here in these past few chapters, it's talking about Absalom's army. That's a little confusing because normally when we see the men of Israel, we, we're, we're meaning God's people. But in this case, in these couple of chapters, it refers to David's army and typically the men of Israel as the ones that are following Absalom. And so they, they flee, each returning to their own home. A clear sign that none of them intended to put up any additional fight. We don't know whether or not the men knew that Absalom was dead, but what they did know was that they had been beaten by David's men, that the death toll was tremendous, and that the sound of the trumpet meant that nobody would be chasing after them, and so they went home. And then we see that Absalom's body was taken, and it was thrown into a pit, and it's covered with stones. This is Absalom the son of a king. This is not a burial that is fit for the son of a king. Even in his traitor estate, it seems, especially knowing the care that David had for Absalom, that his body should have been taken home to Jerusalem. It should have been properly buried, but instead he's thrown in a hole in the middle of the forest, only to be completely forgotten. And by contrast, we see that he had set up a monument for himself, for after his death, since he had no heirs. We're told back in chapter 14 that he had two sons and a daughter, Tamar, one we can only assume is named after his sister. But based on what we're told here and the fact that, we never, uh, that his two sons are never named, it seems likely that they didn't live to be very old. And so the son of a king, the one that would have been in line to receive the throne, instead receives no ceremony, no honorable burial, and leaves behind no legacy apart from an unused monument and the knowledge that 20,000 men are dead because of his desire to overthrow his father. And we have to stop and wonder about the legacy that we're leaving behind. Of course, the most important thing that any of us can consider about our future is our eternity. But for those of us that are in Christ, we're promised in 2 Corinthians 1 and Ephesians 1 that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit for that day. And so if you're in Christ, your eternity is certain. And so the next most important thing is, well, what do I do with this earthly life? What do I do now? What will come after me physically in this place? Are we preparing for that? If you ask me, when we look at the church in America over the last 25 or 50 years, I see this as a major 
flaw in the church. We've stopped thinking about the generation that would be raised up after us and the generation that would come after them. This used to be how the church operated. I don't mean this church. I mean the church. I mean Christ's church. This used to be how the church operated. They, they put things in place so that long after they were gone, the work of the church would continue. And I can see in the Church of America where we've given up a legacy for preference. We've given up building up something that would last long beyond us. And I, I don't mean buildings either. Buildings, they crumble eventually. All of them do. But I mean caring about something that would come after we leave this life and we move into eternity. And we've stopped thinking about that. We've, only, we've become only concerned with our own efforts now. And that leads us to be guided only by our preferences, not by what's best for the future. And so when we look around, we see churches are dead or dying. Relationships are strained within the church because we can't agree on petty things like the color of the carpet or what kind of music we should sing, or we're angry because a building we invested in isn't coming in the way that we expected, or the people that we're reaching and that are coming and joining the church aren't the people that we're interested in reaching. Praise the Lord that he has taken this church beyond so many of these struggles that other churches are facing by fixing our eyes on the future. But I cannot help but think that we're not all the way there yet. Our mission strategy and our church planning strategy as a church are a great, a great start towards leaving behind a legacy, and I'm so thankful for it. But the truth is, we aren't really hoping in and believing for the people that would be raised up after us until we're willing to invest our lives into creating a foundation for them to build on. Our, our investment is manifested in discipleship. When we invest our time in other people, we say that we care about a legacy that is left behind. It's how we've gotten to this place because the gospel was entrusted to faithful men who would go and be able to teach others also. And so as we look at this really lack of a legacy that Absalom leaves behind, we have to be challenged. Even if he had been taken home and buried under his monument, what kind of a legacy is that? What are you doing to invest your time in other people? To see the gospel go out? To see believers found and to help them grow and to help them make disciples? You see, that's the challenge. The challenge is not, can we inspire one or two or six or ten of you enough to go and make disciples, but can we make disciples who recognize that the call on their lives is also to make disciples? And can we grow the kingdom in such a way that it goes on beyond us until the Lord returns, whether that's 10 years or 100 years or 10,000 years? Are you ready to make that kind of an investment? Is it worth giving your life for? It's certainly better than either option that was available to Absalom. It's better than being thrown in a pit. Or it's better than a giant monument. 
And so we have looked at the value of good counsel, the value of integrity, the value of a legacy. And now I want us to take a look at the value of gentleness. You know, with Absalom dead, there's one thing that's clear. Well, two. It's clear that David's going to be disappointed. This was the opposite of what he asked for. And it's also clear that somebody's going to have to take him the news that his son is dead. And so let's take a look at this. We're going to go almost through the end of the chapter. We're going to save one verse for last. So we're going to go 19 through 32. And I'm going to see if I can do better with this name than I did in the first service. Uh, And it says in verse 19, Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry the news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news, because the king's son is dead. And then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. And the Cushite bowed before Joab, and he ran. And then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. And so he said to him, Run. And then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. And now David was sitting between the two gates, And the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and he saw a man running alone. And the watchman called out, and he told the king, and he said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer, and the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. And the king said, He also brings news. And the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man, and he comes with good news. And then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth. And he said, blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised, against, raised hands against my lord, the king. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? And Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. And so he turned aside and he stood still. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, It is well, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And so, we get a chance to look at the value of gentleness. We see Ahimaaz volunteer to bring the news to David there at the beginning of that section. This is Ahimaaz who, along with Jonathan in the last chapter, served as messengers to bring the news to David about Ahithophel and Hushai's counsel before Absalom and to warn him about what might be coming. It could be that Ahimaaz felt some personal responsibility to bring this message to David. But in any case, Joab refuses him. He tells him that he won't bring the news today. It's possible that Joab is trying to protect Ahimaaz since he knows that he will not only have to carry good news about the battle, but also the terrible news that the king's son is dead. And so Joab sends the Cushite instead. We don't know who this man is. That's the only name that we're given for him to carry the news to the king. And yet, 
we can see that even after the Cushite leaves, Ahimaaz is still burdened by whatever responsibility it, he feels towards David. And so he goes back to Joab and he basically says, you know, even though you've already sent somebody to carry this news, and even though I won't be rewarded for bringing this news, even still, I, I want to go. And I want to carry this news to the king. And so with Joab's permission, Ahimaaz also sets out to bring the news to the king. It seems at this point in the battle, we're not told how long this is, but they are waiting, clearly, for some news. There's the watchman standing at the gate. The king is nearby, waiting to hear what has happened. And when they see somebody running, we immediately recognize that they are indeed waiting for news, right? Because they start speculating about this news that is coming. They see a person running alone, and the king says, well, then they're bringing news. And they see a second person running alone, and they said, well, that, this person must also be bringing news. We get the idea that they were waiting, maybe on pens and needles, to hear what has happened. And then we see that the, the watchman begins to identify the first runner, maybe a Himaaz. Now, I don't know, this must be a special, like, biblical you know, Old Testament skill where you could just stand from across a field and see somebody running and be like, oh yeah, that's definitely, that looks like a Himaaz. I don't, I don't know where you get this, I don't know where you get this skill from, but he recognizes the way that a Himaaz runs and he calls out to David and he tells him who it is. And we get to see something interesting happen because anticipation of news begins to shift to hope, right? You, you see that there? He, instead of saying they bring news, he says, they, well, they must be bringing good news. Uh, this is a Himaaz coming. And so there's hope in David's voice that maybe because they're seeing a Himaaz that there is good news. And so a Himaaz arrives at the gate even though he left after the Cushite. And as you always should do, he leads with the good news, right? The good news is God's delivered you out of the hands of your enemies. But we immediately see in David's response the news that he was really hoping for, right? The news that he sat waiting for somebody to bring because he is much less interested in the state of the battle as he is in the state of his son. But when asked about the welfare of Absalom, Ahimaaz doesn't provide a direct response. I don't think there's any reason to think that Ahimaaz doesn't know that Absalom's dead. In fact, in verse 20, when he's told he can't go take the news to the king, he's told specifically, explicitly, it's because the king's son is dead. And I don't think that there's any reason for Ahimaaz to lie to David. He wasn't the one that killed the king's son. That was Joab and Joab's men. And so there's no, there's no reason to think that he doesn't know, and there's no reason for him to lie. And so... The only thing that I can think of is that Hemaz was motivated by concern for the king. The only conclusion I can come to is that his care for the king was leading him to try to deliver this news in a way that was full of compassion for the loss of the king's son and the gentleness that was so much needed in this moment. And I know that we can see this clearly because we can see the way the second runner arrives and the response is totally different. We can see the need for gentleness and compassion in what Ahimaaz had to say because there's an utter lack of it in the message of the Cushite. I mean, the initial message is the same. God has delivered you out of the hands of your enemies. But when the Cushite is probed about the state of Absalom, we get a window 
into probably how much of the army had, that had gone out to the battle was feeling at this point in time. Essentially, the Cushites' response to David's inquiry about how Absalom is, is may every person that ever rises up against the king come to a fate that is as terrible as this. I mean, wow. Like, what a way to tell a man that his son is dead. It may have been how everybody was feeling, but it is so tactless, and it lacks empathy at all for what the king is going through. And that's why I said that there's value in gentleness, in the way that we treat one another, in the way that we take care with each other. Not, most of the time we say take care of each other. I mean the way that we take care with each other when we're dealing with one another. Those of you guys that are in D groups know, you probably memorized it, that John 13, 34, and 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's interesting that Jesus would say this because it's not really a new commandment. In fact, it's the very original commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. But when Jesus says this, he says we ought to love one another, not just as we love ourselves, but we ought to love one another the way that he has loved us. That becomes the way that the world will know us if we love each other the way that Jesus has in a way that's full of compassion in a way that puts others needs ahead of our own in a way that looks on them and that sees their heartbreak and instead of pouncing on them hastily and making the situation worse we pause we look on each other with love and we deal with each other in gentleness and that was clearly what was needed in this situation but if you're anything like me when you think about this, what comes to mind is not the way that others have not dealt gently with you, but instead how you failed to deal gently with others, to display the kind of love and empathy and tact that was needed in this situation, to display compassion and to seek to see things restored rather than torn apart. And if there's a specific thing that the Lord is bringing to your mind this morning where you've not dealt gently with somebody else, I, I hope that you'll take some time today to make that right. It's one of the wonderful things about his word is it illuminates things in our lives that, that we need to do so that he can move and so that he can work through us. And so we've looked at the value of good counsel. We've looked at the value of integrity. We've looked at the value of a legacy. And we've looked at the value of gentleness. And I want to close by looking at the value of a father's love. We save this one verse for last, but let's look at the conclusion now of this passage. 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 33. And the king was deeply moved, and he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son my son. I mean, we knew already from what we just looked at, at Ahimaaz's attempts at gentleness, that this news wasn't going to sit well with David. 
But I don't think anybody would expect the utter devastation that we see, especially when we think about all that Absalom has done. If we were just talking about a man mourning the loss of his son, then this grief would be totally reasonable. But the truth is that over the course of the last few chapters, Absalom has lied to David when he said, let me take my brothers out and let us go and and celebrate, right? And then as a result of that lie, he went and he murdered Amnon. He has usurped David's authority. He has burned down Joab's fields. He's paraded himself, as we saw two chapters ago, around as somebody of importance. He hired for himself men, and he paraded himself about among the streets. He undercut his father's ability to lead and judge the land. If you remember when he stood at the gates and he would tell people that would come, oh, unfortunately, there's nobody here to judge your issue. If I was king, I would absolutely be taking care of this. He lied again as he went away to Hebron. He told his father he wanted to go and he wanted to make a sacrifice in Hebron, and instead he went away to plan a coup. And then upon his return to Jerusalem, he caused his father to flee. He took over the city and his father's palace. He slept with his father's concubines in public view and in, in full display on the rooftop. And ultimately, as we just saw now, he led an army of thousands out into the wilderness to hunt down his, father's, his father and his supporters and to kill them. And yet, in spite of all of that, David is overcome with grief at the news that his son was dead. Even though what that means is that this battle is over and that David has won, he is absolutely distraught. Why? I think at the heart of it is that he wanted to be reconciled with his son. He hoped for repentance. He hoped that something would change and his son would return to him. There was not a moment along the way where Absalom, no matter how he felt, was too far off or too far gone to turn and come home. As I thought about this, it reminded me of the parable of the prodigal son. If you guys want to flip with me to Luke chapter 15, we'll see, we'll see how the way that David is distraught is just so similar to the, the picture of how the father feels in Luke chapter 15. If you guys remember the story of the prodigal son, there was this man and he had two sons and one of his sons came and he said to him, Father, give me my inheritance now. Basically, you know, give me what's coming to me when you would die. Like, that, I just want the money. And he takes the money and he goes off into uh, another land and the, the Bible tells us that he squanders all of that money that would have been in his, his inheritance on loose living and ultimately he ends up penniless and destitute. He finds himself in a pit of pigs longing to eat the food that the pigs are eating. And then he comes to his senses. And then he realizes, you know what, even, even the slaves, even the hired hands in my father's house are better off than this. I should go back to him and see if he'll just take me in as a worker. And so he gets up and he goes and he returns to his father. And in Luke chapter 15 and verse 20, 
It says he arose and he came to his father. And look at this. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion. And the father ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. See, what a, what a picture of the heart of a father that desires, no matter what's happened, to be reunited with his son. And I can't help but think that this is how David was feeling up until this point. There was a hope. He stood looking at the gate, wanting to hear news that maybe his son had been captured, maybe his son had surrendered, ready to welcome him with open arms, hopeful that in some way they'd be reunited. And yet what he gets instead is news that Absalom is dead. And so it's through this lens that we can understand how distraught he is. Because it wasn't up until this point, it wasn't up until the point that he got the news that Absalom was dead that he knew that there was no hope. As Kevin and the band comes, that's what I want you guys to see, the devastation of a father that is no longer able to be reconciled to his son, his anguish. Over that, his whole heart's desire, even in all of this, was that his son would turn and come back to him. And in this, we get a beautiful picture of the way that God the Father loves us. I think it's said so well in Second Peter. If you want to flip and take a look at it, Second Peter chapter three gives us this same picture from God's perspective instead of from David's. In verse 8 it says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. But check this out. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but He's patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and its works that are done on it will be exposed. You see, in this passage in Second Peter, we see exactly the heart of God and how it mirrors the heart of David. He's not slow to bring about his judgment as we would count slowness. He's patient, waiting for restoration, waiting <laughs> for people who are guilty of the same thing, really, when we look at what Absalom did, for people who are guilty of treason, for people who are guilty of wanting to set up our own kingdom instead of his, but he patiently waits for us to turn, for us to repent from that, for us to be reconciled to God, for us to return and want that right relationship again. That's what David wanted. 
And he didn't give up hope that it would happen until he got the news that his son was dead. And just like that, what we do know we do have is today. We don't know when that day is that Second Peter and that passage in chapter 3 is talking about where everything that we see around us will be burned up. We don't know when that day is. We don't know when the day is that our death will come. But what we do know is that we have today. We have today to repent. We have a God who waits patiently for us to return to him. We have a God who, much like David, desires his children to return to him. And he's made a way for it too. And he invites us, the ones of us that are believers, to go into others. And we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and, and to tell them, to plead with them, be reconciled to God. What a great hope. That's what God wants from you, to turn and to run, from, run to him. And instead of seeing the story like we saw in David where he mourns over his son's death, we see like we saw in the prodigal son where he could run out and embrace us and restore us and reunite us. And it's all because of Jesus that we're able to, to claim that. I hope, if you're in this place today and you don't know that there's a way that you can be right with God, if you are sitting under the struggle of your treason and your treachery and your offense against God and you're wondering if he can love you, we looked at three different passages right there in just five minutes that says that he can and I could point to a bunch more. He stands waiting. And believer, if you do know Jesus, I hope, I hope that you're thinking about the legacy that you'll leave behind. I hope that you're thinking about the investment that you will make in the people around you, whether it's your family or whether it's your coworkers or whether it's your neighbors. God wants to do something in and through you that will last long after you. Will you say yes to that?